I carry around this thing in my hand that's like half my brain at least, right? It's a new set of physics almost as far as like how life works and everyone just sort of seemed to go along with it. That's probably how the metaverse sort of takes shape. Everyone does it, now it's a thing. What does this mean for DTC, for marketers, for people in the industry? I mean, there's a lot of disruption on the horizon. The more people's lives are digital and generating data, and the more that data determines what their experience of the world is, the more they're gonna have to say, I need to control where that goes, for what purposes, because it is literally being fed back to me as the world I inhabit. Welcome to Future Proof, brought to you by D2C Podcast and The Lazy Marketer. I'm Eric Dick with my co-host, the lazy marketer himself, Chris Rempel. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about what this whole Future Proof product uh, is that we're trying to create? Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, we're looking at doing about a monthly deep dive piece into kind of what we see as being on the horizon for marketers and for the industry in general, um, whether it's super trends like AI and machine learning, or if it's things that are possibly uh, a bit more disruptive, but they could go either way, things like Web3. The question is, how does this impact marketing? Will it impact marketing? What, what does it mean for us? What are our best guesses? And so, you know, we try and dig into a topic at that kind of level once a month and really kind of put our best thinking around it. It's not about making predictions and being right or anything like that. It's just looking at sort of the long arc of, of marketing history, as it were, uh, seeing how far we've come, what we've been right and wrong about in the past, and kind of applying that same level of uh, accuracy, say, to what we see on the horizon. And so anyway, in short, it's looking at what's on the horizon, what do we see coming, what do we think it means. And how you could potentially take action to future-proof your digital marketing or e-commerce-based business. And so today, for our very first ever episode of Future Proof, uh, we've brought on Richard Harris, who is the CEO and founder of Black Crow AI. Richard has a really interesting background working uh, in the machine learning space for over a decade, I want to say. I won't give it away. Um, That's right. But right about a decade. Right about a decade. But I just want to, let's just start, Richard. Why don't you just tell us, like, what was your first experience with machine learning and marketing? Sure. So previous, so yeah, I've been working in the space uh, for a while. And at a previous company, we were looking, my, my, our first real experience of machine learning and AI was around a risk mitigation practice, meaning um, the business was involved in sort of helping commerce companies monetize their non-converting traffic with some risky strategies, like putting competitive ads in the middle of their transaction path. And it was a great business model, but it was very uncomfortable for retailers to think about putting an ad for their competitors in their path. So we started a risk mitigation practice, which is how can you figure out who should see a competitive ad and who shouldn't? And that initially started with rules-based systems. Then we started doing some very early uh, ML. And then it really sort of took off and we were doing machine learning for, and these were very large sort of Fortune 500 kinds of companies. And so that was the first, you know, tangible where we started gathering groups of amazing data scientists and machine learning engineers uh, around us and started to really understand 
the way machine learning was going to impact, you know, commerce uh, and marketing more generally. And the interesting part is, you know, the, the, the headline AI applications are the super sexy ones, you know, like robots and self-driving cars. And yet, when you look at what even, say, Amazon talks about uh, as it relates to, to AI, it's all these non-sexy operational things, right, about time to market and product recommendations and fulfillment. And I think that's where things are, are going to evolve. Certainly, there will be more robots and more self-driving cars, but there's all these real operational impacts of ML, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which can really transform the P&L um, of enterprises in, in every vertical. Let's dig into this a little bit. So the initial origin story came from risk mitigation from showing ads, competitive ads to the wrong people. That's interesting. Where did it go from there? Because I know you also worked at the travel companies, which uh, you're at, at the biggest travel company where ML like, you know, just was really working with a lot of interesting data. Yeah, that's right. And that was actually the key observation. So inside of travel companies, you know, they probably weren't as advanced as say an Amazon or a Google or a Facebook in terms of their AI capabilities, but we're sitting on, you know, pretty massive data sets that uh, for the most part were under leveraged. You know, they had, they had teams of data scientists, but weren't always focused on uh, sort of innovating in the data pipelining that makes ML actually work. And, and to give you a sense of like how this plays out at a fortune 500 company and the need for another model, which is why we started Black Crow. So at a Fortune 500 company, right, think, you know, a, a giant travel company or a pharmaceutical company or a, any large enterprise company. At some point, some advocate inside the organization, this would have started to happen, you know, five, 10 years ago, will realize that they're sitting on a massive amounts of data, right, data generated by their uh, internal operations by their customers, by their suppliers, by their marketing activities. These may or may not all be logged. And for the most part, uh, if they are logged, they're in a whole variety of different systems that have sort of grown up a bit anarchically, like an old British city design. And at some point, someone will realize, oh my God, we it will be a, a competitive disadvantage to not being made sense of. And that's what machine learning is, is making sense of large data sets uh, that no human or group of humans could do on their own. I and so, so I'm just curious about data, about data pipeline, like, like data. I, I think that's one of the biggest issues for people that are t contemplating getting their hands around AI is the data hygiene aspect of it and making sure that not only, you know, you can give, give something a set of data, but to have it be an ongoing to create ongoing learnings. Just talk a little bit about what data pipelining looks like. Sure. So, yeah, there's a couple aspects that, you know, data hygiene is really about those sort of all those different data silos that I was talking about where where the sort of data infrastructure has grown up inside of a, a company without a ton of forethought or planning or even realizing there's going to be an AI opportunity. So, like, step one is getting that data together, right? So unifying all of these different databases or CRM tools, or people have all sorts of software solutions that are their own sort of databases or repositories. And at some point, companies realize they need to kind of look across all of these databases, 
in order to make sense of them, right? In order to begin generating intelligence. It's interesting in that Fortune 500 journey I was talking about, that will be step one, right? Is, is the insight. And then, you know, for the most part, these giant companies, they'll go out and hire an army of data scientists and data engineers, and they'll go get a giant tool like Databricks, um, and that'll cost them, you know, millions of dollars over a number of years. And step one is sort of, you know, having solutions engineers parachute in to try to get the data in order. So that will usually be bringing it into a sort of database uh, to kill all databases, a, a data lake. And then this very arduous task of labeling, normalizing, making sure that data from different sources can be stitched together and uh, has some sort of universal nomenclature taxonomy in a way that it can be usable for higher order processes like machine learning, like essentially finding the patterns in the data. And for the most part, you know, again, outside of robots and cars, the main application of machine learning is predictions, right? Is taking these massive amounts of data, making sense of them, and being able to see into the future. Um, but that cleansing and normalizing and data hygiene is sort of step one. And it's what has historically made these sorts of, you know, Fortune 500 enterprise grade projects extremely risky, extremely laborious, and often not delivering, um, not delivering value. Um, everything I'm working on now is about sort of dismantling that whole kind of system. We can, we can talk about that if it's interesting, but that is the sort of journey that, that the largest companies are on. One quick question around that. Um, so like, you, like that makes sense, sort of figuring out this mountain of stuff, making it decipherable, so to speak. Um, but into the predictions, I guess, phase of it, is it, how do I, how do I ask this? Do they know the questions to ask, or is the point that machine learning uh, can kind of surface newfound insights? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly applications and use cases of value where it's about sort of letting the machine learn on the entire data set and, and drive insights. Um, more tangible and more widespread is the I have this known set of problems inside of my company where I'm just lacking the data or the visibility to make good decisions. And so let me just walk down that existing list that I have. And, you know, in many companies, you can almost walk through their P&L and every line item will have one or two key things where being able to see the future, making sense of all the data related to that, you know, function in the P&L will unlock uh, massive amounts of value. Makes sense. I was just chatting with uh, Ryan McKenzie from True Earth, and he was talking about some of the learnings that uh, a recent competitor of his actually made about realizing that the, where their ad spend was was not distributed correctly at all, basically. They, they And they actually cut off spending in British Columbia or, or massively reduced spending in British Columbia and spent it, put that all into Ontario because they just, they got an, another perspective on their data that realized, oh man, these are all wasted impressions that Facebook's happy to take. That's right. Uh, but hey, when we put it here, we see much more incrementality. And I feel like incrementality is the real name of the game for marketers in this space. Absolutely, right? If you want to generate returns on marketing investment, you have to understand, well, had I not undertaken this marketing activity and the resources and dollars associated with it, what would the alternate outcome have been? 
And if that isn't uh, significantly better, then then you're wasting a lot of dollars. And that's a big, when I was saying, you know, the Fortune 500 model, um, you know, it's this heavy thing, requires developing all these competencies and access to talent, like ML engineers and buying big tools like Databricks. We realize like that system is working at the global 2000 level. But we were very interested in the question of like, well, what about, you know, the guys you deal with all day, the smaller companies, direct to consumer companies, you know, not a global travel behemoth. Sort of where are they at extracting this very tangible value, these outcomes that that ML predictions can drive? And when we looked at that market, we were like, oh, there's nothing, right? <laughs> there's no tool for them. There's like, unless you've got millions of dollars and, and dozens of hires, you're not going to get those outputs, which can drive these outcomes. And that's the reason we, we started Black Crow is really to get rid of all that, you know, data laking and data integration and hygiene and normalizing that multi-year, multi-million dollar project. It's like, okay, if you want the outcomes and sort of gets to your, your question, Chris, you know, turns out CAC is like one of the biggest one, customer acquisition costs is one of the biggest ones for D2C. Um, if you want to get the same kinds of outcomes that Amazon is getting, how could we deliver machine learning, right? How can it get democratized and much more widespread? How can you deliver that in a way that you skip all of the build and you skip all of the integration? And that's what we're doing here. We're, we're, we're making, you know, Fortune 500 machine learn predictions available to companies of any size with one click. That sounds uh, insanely uh, too easy or unreal. Uh, but that's what we've worked on is getting all that data pipelining right, being able to ingest new kinds of streaming data that don't require all this data stitching and, and database silos being united. And so I think that is, you know, um, that's a big part of my my life right now is figuring out, you know, and, and achieving like, how do you really get that democratization of the Fortune 500 model and get this value into the hands of people who need it just as much, but where the existing uh, heavy tools and, and build teams model is just not going to fly. So is it kind of like adding constraints allows you the bandwidth in that way? It's, it's like really, like you say, if it's just CAC, and if it's just, you know, social media ad spend, whatever, does that kind of unlock Fortune 500 ML for smaller firms? Well, you know what's been really, uh, to some degree, I mean, focus is always helpful doing one thing uh, or five things uh, extremely well. What I'd say, like, just back to, you know, data pipelining for a second, the, the key innovation that we came up with, which was the unlock, um, is is real time so we've we've made a bunch of uh technical advances using AutoML in real time uh data processing meaning the ability to ingest massive amounts of data in real time uh and process it and instantaneously our our, our sort of goal is 15 milliseconds so 15 thousandths of a second being able to process it and push back a prediction now, the interesting thing about real time means that you can use different kinds of data sources than the whole Fortune 500 model of static databases and whatever. What it means like for, for smaller companies, and this is sort of like an area we focus um, on, 
is if you can ingest the real-time event data of users interacting with the brand, so how they're navigating and how they're flowing through the experiences and the way they're consuming visuals or you know whatever it is, all of that real-time event data, the user activity data, is this incredibly rich source. Uh, and it is largely standardized because it's happening inside of a browser. And so one of the big innovations that, that we've achieved is sort of delivering real-time ML to much smaller companies. Because this is something, again, you know, Google does it, Amazon does it. It's not a widely solved problem. But when you do it, all of a sudden, with a very simple integration, our machine can listen to that real-time data and start coming up with predictions on the fly. And, you know, the, the first thing we do is we predict the future value of users on D2C sites. You know, it turns out there's lots of applications for that, but the one that's really uh, where we've got a, a ton of traction, I can talk through some others, but is in CAC. So when you push that knowledge of future value of a user into the platforms people use like Facebook or Snapchat or Google, when you know that future value, all of a sudden you can make much better marketing decisions. Like back to your point, Eric, like, should I be spending here or should I be spending there? When you know the value of a user, you can make much, much better decisions. And in fact, you'll realize there's segments of users who have, you know, interacted with your brand where probably don't really want to be spending because their chance of converting is just so low versus others where you're like, wow, this is a high future value user. I want to make sure I'm in front of them uh, in in the channels uh, that they use. As you describe it, I can hear it's, so much of it is based on data you own, which is great. It's based on your first-party data, zero-party data if you collected all your sales data. Um, how has it been working up against these other big AI companies like Meta, like Google, uh, like when it comes to the, like the, the, their walled gardens and how you're able to kind of pull data from their ecosystems? So we actually don't pull data. So we are just um, – we're sort of this prediction layer for – for D2C brands. So we just use their own first-party data or zero-party data in some cases and process it and come up with these predictions. But because when we push back a prediction, it's another unit of first-party data that the brand owns, right? The D2C company owns. We don't own it. It's not locked inside our platform. It's just another piece of extremely powerful customer intelligence that they own and can activate it, you know, anywhere that that ingests first-party data, which is basically anywhere. That now, makes perfect sense. And I just thought about it, like you'd obviously get your most valuable people, you could put them in a special urgency campaign, or you make sure that they didn't see your heaviest discounts because they're going to purchase anyway. I feel like one of the biggest problems I see in this space is this idea, this worry that marketing in a lot of cases is just pulling purchases that would have happened anyway forward. And I feel like if, any, if, a, if, a, you, know, if you can figure out how to differentiate those from, you know, really find that added, where where your spend is additive, I feel like that, you know, you built a better mousetrap, the whole world will be wanting a piece. Totally right. I totally agree with that. Um, and that's why, you know, there are multiple, once you have this kind of predictive intelligence, there are multiple ways you can deploy it in your marketing. We've been talking about sort of, I guess, more like prospecting, retargeting kind of marketing where, you know, it, it's just a massive lever. There's all kinds of others, like in your messaging, whether it's email or SMS, in your UX, in things like your discounting, sort of getting more intelligent than giving everyone 25% off for Labor Day or whatever it's going to be. Can you segment that to incent uh, different kinds of behaviors for different categories of users? But at its base, it's really just saying, you know what, I now have the ability to know who's very likely to buy 
and who's completely unlikely to buy in the future, you know, looking minutes to months ahead of time. And then you can just sort of ask yourself the question as a brand, okay, if I know that, if I know Eric is part of a user set that will convert 70% of the time, but Chris is part of a user set that will convert 0.2% of the time, do I want to do everything exactly the same for those two users? Like, no, of course not. We know intuitively the answer is like, of course, of course not. And so when we talk to brands all the time, we're like, okay, if you knew this, by the way, you can with one click, if you knew this, what would you want to do differently? And it's a long list. Now, CAC tends to be number one, spending on user acquisition, because it's like the biggest line item in everyone's PL. But then there are all these other things around, you know, pricing, discounting, uh, prioritizing my customer service queue, all these things where sort of de-averaging what that user experience and what that touch point is just makes so much sense. What what would you say in that process with brands? What comes up as a recurring surprise for them when they go through this process and and kind of see the prediction engine running? So there's a couple things. You know, one is you can look at, you know, usually where we start out, we can make these sort of future value buckets or segments, you know, as granular as we want. Usually when we're starting out, we'll do either three or 10 of them. So just for example's sake, let's say it's a low, medium, high, right? And historically, like the aha moment with our customer usually comes from like, you ask them, what's your conversion rate? And they'll say 2%. And then you just look at the future propensity to buy, right? In three easy buckets, right? And the high value, you know, high future value bucket, their conversion rate will be 20%. And the medium is probably 1.8. And the low is, I don't know, 0.2. I'm making these numbers up. I don't know if that will average out to to two. But say they're equal size buckets. And so all of a sudden that that 2% conversion rate is just, it's real on average. But if you just de-average it a little bit, you see, oh, there is no 2% conversion rate. It's very different. But then when you look at where the marketing spend is going, right, it's going as though everyone was a 2% converter. And so, you know, we'll show them all the time, like, hey, here's where your spend is going. One third of it, the same amount going to people who convert at 70% is going to people who convert at 0.2%. Do we want to try doing a little better on that? And, you know, we have the playbooks for them. But that, that aha moment of, oh, crap, a third of my spend is going to people who I now know are just not going to buy. Like that tends to be uh, the number one light bulb go off. That's amazing. That's I, there's some quote. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher it, but there's a lot of six foot people that have drowned in a six foot on average creek crossing or whatever. That yes, is. that's exactly <laughs> right. It's exactly yeah. right. And, and you mentioned CAC, and we we talk about ad spend, but the, the other theme I'm hearing again and again across the other podcast is just. The, amount, the, the importance of CRO, the importance of maximizing the value of everyone's visit to your site. Um, and so I'm curious, like right now, that's the main uh, focus for a lot of your advertisers, but do you have these other applications as well where you can you can strap the AI on and and, and come up with, with, with other things that'll improve your conversion rates? Yeah, we've got a whole bunch of things that are sort of in beta with, you know, a few dozen of our current uh, partners who have been, you know, historically using us as CAC. That's usually where we start because it's such a like migraine problem uh, for brands. But yeah, in in CRO, just take a simple example where um, you're running an A/B test, and you know, should the whatever you know the color of this button be blue or green, and 
the the winner of that a b test will be whoever gets the most clicks on the on the button you know and so you may do that and again if you're doing average value thinking meaning everyone converts at two percent you'll say oh the blue button you know is five percent more likely to get clicked on and the green button less so but then if you just look at the results of that test segmented by you know three buckets ten buckets whatever it is it may turn out that people who aren't gonna buy like that color button but people who are very likely to buy hate that button and so just when you de-average it you can make better decisions about what the ux should look like and make sure that things that you're doing are better for your highest value visitors right as opposed to uh, treating everyone the same way and that's a super simple example but um, there are so many paths now where sort of the experience is generated dynamically. Um, there's not a single path for everyone to get through. And we've got a lot more predictions in the works as well. But understanding more about what someone is trying to achieve and what their value to you will be just gives a much more intelligent underpinning in real time for decisions you have to make in real time about what the next, you know, screen um, should look like for a particular user. It always comes back to Minority Report in a way, right? It, it, of, of that sort of real-time interactive commerce experience that that, the, that Steven Spielberg did so well in that movie. Um, it, it is. It's, it's we actually considered naming ourselves Precog. Um, oh, nice. We were trying to figure out. <laughs> and then, and actually Precog.ai, I think it was available. And then our lawyers were just like, yeah, um, there's probably some copyright on that and you don't want uh, a Hollywood law firm after you. It'd be a very dramatic name. I just think of them all laying there in the milk and having dreams and <laughs> it might be a bit intense. Yeah. Uh, the idea of dynamic funnels to me is so interesting. Like we, we you know, just this week, uh, Wally, or not Wally, Dali opened up. It's, you know, you can now buy credits in order to run, you know, to run images. I have a friend, for instance, who works in the children's book industry. And he was like, this is going to change everything. Like you can now print on demand, spin up on Amazon, you know, an endless number potentially if you train the AI, AI well enough of, of simple children's books and simple children's artwork. Uh, you know, as, a, as an ex-affiliate marketer, I've talked about this with Chris a little but it's like, oh, how many different ad variations could you spin up uh, with the right sort of, uh, you know, instructions, essentially? So it, it does seem like we're on the cusp. Well, and, and sort of as an extension of that, Eric, like we've talked about, you know, if you can create an image or generatively or whatever the word is with, with Dolly, why can't you create a funnel that drawing from, you know, who we're profiling these people as using machine learning? So this is a this is your, your high intent buyer, this is your whatever, but all the other things we know about them, why can't we have a dolly for a customer experience sort of the whole way through, right? And so now you have kind of a living, breathing business, so a living, breathing funnel, I guess, for starters. It's, it's hard to kind of envision the unforeseeable, like who knows where this goes, but to me, it's kind of, I, I think we'll be there sooner than later at a point where you'll kind of have a shape-shifting marketing experience that's, you know, user by user. Curious to, to sort of get your thoughts on, on sort of how what you see taking shape in the future. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's going to look more like that. And, you know, I always put it in the context of, of kind of push versus pull. If you think about the earliest 
ads on the internet, you know, banners on wherever Yahoo or something like that. Like, yeah, they kind of worked and they would kind of create awareness, but like everyone kind of also hated them and, and they were nonsense. And then, but that was a push model, which is like, Hey, let me just push this out in front of you very much like a TV ad or a broadcast um, sort of method. And then Google came along. Right. And that was a pull method where all of a sudden they didn't need to know anything about you. They didn't need to know where you spent your time as long as you needed a search engine because the user was saying, I'm interested in this, right? It's that, you know, whatever I type into that search bar. And that's why they just started like printing money, right? It's the best business model in the world is having a real time understanding of every human's intent. And then social came along, right? So that seemed like that was just going to kill. And then all of a sudden social came along and it's like, you don't have that same intent, right? Like people aren't showing up to Instagram to sort of tell the internet what they're interested in at the moment. And yet they were creating all this ad inventory. I was like, well, what the hell do you do with all this inventory that is, has no intent attached to it? And that's where things started getting more intelligent, right? Because you needed inference, right? You needed to be able to like assemble because no one was typing in, I'm interested in lawnmowers. You had to assemble all of these different sort of pieces of information, right? Things that people did that were sort of saying, this is me, this is me, this is me, this is me. And try to like mold that into some notion of intent. And that inference process is a process totally geared uh, to AI, right? Because there's just way too much information. Humans can have hypotheses, but they're never going to find the patterns in that amount of data. And to come back to the, you know, what we were just talking about, in some sense, that that pull model, which today commerce is largely about, it's like, here's my website, here's all the shit I sell, please navigate through it by, you know, clicking here or there or whatever. I think the equivalent, and that's sort of a, a Google kind of model, and that's where Amazon uh, is today, but it's also getting more intelligent, like social is, which is figuring out, based on the signals you give to the machine, right? How can I create an experience where you don't have to ask me, where I know enough about you that I can just make this like infinitely more relevant? And I do think that's the future. It's going to be a weird one because people want privacy at the same time that they are like, I won't tolerate a crappy experience. I want it tailored to me. How those two balance out, like no one knows. It's a contradiction in, in all of our heads. But I think for me, it's like the aisles are going to change. No one's going to walk into the same store because in the same way that no one's Instagram feed is exactly the same. Just like the cans just switch and it's just like, oh, there's soup over here now. You're just as you walk down the grocery store, I, yeah. like a, I could see that in a movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, just rows of Oreos. and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. If you ever walk into the store and all you got is Oreos, like you got to yeah. worry about the data that you're emanating. <laughs> but it's like even like the warehouses – like the Amazon warehouses, it used to be shelves and people would run around to shelves to find the item. And now it's robots coming to people, right? And so there's much more of this like, hey, I can anticipate what you as a warehouse worker need. And that could be like almost the grocery store. Again, I don't want to push the analogy, but you walk into a store and you don't have to run around finding stuff. It's here for you. Um, it's in front of you, maybe some intelligent suggestions. Now, that's obviously going to happen digitally first. It is happening now. 
physical, I don't know, I don't have an opinion about, but, um, you know, in that digital experience is going to be, I think, radically de-averaged. What, what do you think the implications are, you know, in kind of looking forward to that sort of environment? Um, what's the role of a marketer? Well, like, what does that become? Uh, you know, is, are we kind of like horse whispers in the future, like coaching the algorithm on what to do? Or is it still sort of a directive and here's sort of the main um, offer components and then, you know, the ML does just variations and optimization? you know, how do you see that shifting over time? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, when people think about what the hell are we all going to do when AI is pervasive, right? And no one needs to work. And it's like, what, well, what are we going to do? And people are just like, we're going to consume and we're going to create art, right? So we're going to choose and then we're going to be creators. I kind of, I don't know what the other options are, but, but and so, it's when I think about what is the marketer going to be doing, I think it's going to be the same two things, right? Choosing. So, you know, Dolly generates my logo for me and you're going to have to like bring some artistic reference and a point of view uh, to these things arrayed in front of you. And so I still think that even within like something that's optimized for an individual, there are things about a brand and values and social impact, but uh, there are these all these things that people care about, which is why they sort of resonate with your product or your brand uh, proposition. And so in that world, right, of custom tailored everything, I sort of think brand is going to become, I don't think brand will lose importance, right? Because no one is going to want to be boxed in by that thing. They're still going to want to have some connection to what they consume beyond the functional aspects of the product. So I think it's going to be those higher order artistic values and choice parameters um, that the marketer is really focused on. And I just hear, I don't, I don't want to dive too deep into this as well, but I hear this is echoing through this idea of Web3 for me as well and where, where Web3 and where the metaverse will go, like when these brands exist in this, in this kind of this other dimension uh, potentially as well, where that brand will be sort of essential and anchored in that space and have this whole other list of benefits from it while you're you know, in, the, in the metaverse essentially that uh, the brands will be able to connect with. Any, any thoughts on the, on the Web3 stuff, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I find it like... So first of all, do I think it's going to happen? Definitely yes. Um, meaning, will there be worlds that occupy a big chunk of our time um, that are not physical? There already are. There already are. Yeah. Like even like talk about this all the time, but like the pandemic just accelerated our move into virtual reality. Like look at us here. At some point some number of years ago, we would have got together in person to do this. I'm running a whole company that is virtual first, right? It doesn't matter where anyone is. We don't care. We care about outcomes, not inputs. And then if I look at like, you know, my niece's generation, she's already, actually my niece came to visit us. I'm out on Fire Island right now by the beach and she's 18. I really hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. But she was already, so she's visiting us, you know, a wife, two kids, dog, and beach, and it's like beautiful. And, and, but, and so for me, 
having that was about her physical presence, being here, being able to talk out on the beach. For her, the actual experience, like certainly she enjoyed being by the beach, but the actual experience was as much her TikTok videos and the reactions, TikTok and Snapchat, and the reactions from her friends to what she was posting. And so either 51 or 49% of her experience of being here at the beach was virtual already. And so anyway, that's all like preamble, but like, do I think that we will work in not just over Zoom, but in built environments um, that are digital? I think so. Will we shop in like back to the grocery store example? Like maybe we just don't go, maybe like we walk the aisles that have been created for us and, and pick our stuff out at the grocery store in the metaverse. That actually sounds uh, much more convenient, even if it's your local grocery store that can deliver in two hours. So yeah, I mean, I think we're already there and and we're already partway there. And half of me thinks that is terrifying, right? Because if big platforms control this thing and if it's hyper, hyper personalized, A, we're going to be living in a world owned by Mark Zuckerberg or Microsoft or whatever. And, you know, we'll be living in Pick that. Pick your billionaire. Pick your billionaire. Pick your billionaire. Yeah. And I don't <laughs> want to personally live in a world Jeff Bezos designed, but then also it's like you pick your metaverse, you know, and is there going to be a blue and a red metaverse in America? And like, we're just, we're already living in different realities based on whether we watch Fox or MSNBC. And what if more of our lives are in these different worlds with just different realities? And that part is like, that's scary because we, we are still going to have lives, you know, physical lives on earth. The flip side is it's like, the most liberating thing in the world, right? Like there's so much talk about you know, identity and gender and, and, and the fact that people's bodies or lives don't conform with what they wish was reality. All of a sudden you have the freedom to be who you want to be, look how you want to look like, and part of me thinks that's wonderful and liberating. Um, another part is like, feels just too far from actuality, but I think there's that, that, really great side of it as well. You have a really good point about sort of how far we already are, you know, and I, I don't think, at least myself, it just occasionally dawns on me. It's like, wow, I, I'm really augmented. I carry on this thing in my hand that's like half my brain at least, right, in terms of like navigation and, and all this stuff. And this, it, it's a new set of physics almost as far as like how life works um, for your average human. And it, we climate, or I don't know if we climatize, but it's like thrust on us very quickly. Um, and everyone's just sort of seemed to go along with it because it's convenient and whatever. And I think that's probably how the metaverse sort of takes shape is it's maybe not intentional. It's just kind of like, oh, this is cool. Let's do this. Everyone does it. Now it's a thing, right? And then you're sort of into it. But I guess going back to how does, what does this mean Um for DTC, for marketers, for people in the industry. I mean, there's, there's a lot of disruption on the horizon. And I don't know, I don't know if we can answer what it means, but. I, I had one point too. I just, your, your point about your niece, who I think was really interesting because I find myself like my screen time in during the pandemic, specifically because of TikTok has gone up further than I'm probably comfortable with right now. I'm battling a little bit, but it's like, if you think about that and you just said like, you know, whereas, you know, that's now as real to her as a lot of other things would be. And everything she does in that space is data. 
Everything, she, you know what I mean? Now a third of our lives or her, or her life or whoever's life is now fully quantifiable through systems, you know, similar to yours, through their algorithms. And it's like it, the more people's lives you can put through these systems, the, the smarter the, the, you know, the intelligence will get around it, which is, which does have a scary aspect to it. Like, I think it's going to have to come down to some merging with uh, blockchain to the point where humans have a, a higher degree of sovereignty, where, where there is, where everything is more out in the open, but people kind of walk around more as, as sort of independent actors with their own agency. They, they control their own data wallets. They control the interactions that they have with all these microsystems. They'll get to be, mon because AI will be taking over all the work, they will be able to monetize aspects of themselves they're not using. They're, they'll be able to aspect data that they're okay sharing. They're, they're, uh, you know, they'll be able to monetize biorhythms, which is kind of scary, uh, or, or things like that. But I, but I see, I think like the, the way the system is evolving, the, it, it's so AI is feeling like it has this potential to become very all powerful and people lives in the way we're describing and i think that the only way to to you know the only way to balance it in way, in some way will be with some like high degree of, of personal autonomy I, I don't know that's my quasi libertarian take i mean i listen i agree with you right when uh, on your fundamental point about like this is all data i think that is so true and in fact when we're you know, when I'm out talking to investors explaining like, well, what is the big picture vision of Black Crow? And, you know, today we're helping D2C brands market more effectively by predicting the value of their users as they, you know, uh, shop in a, on a website. So today, like our data ingestion source is browser, right? Browser data, event data in a browser. But you don't have to stretch your imagination to realize that like, the world is becoming a browser, exactly as you were saying, Eric, right? Like every human activity and some non-human activity is becoming a browser, is becoming a thing that kicks off data in real time, right? You think about IoT, you think about wearables. Uber's, Uber's a browser. Why are all these companies allowed to be not profitable for so long? Because they're constructing the Internet of Things, right? Like Uber will be able to be predictive. It, you know, it, they'll know before you do when, they, when you want a cab potentially because they're building this, this network of data across all these systems. So, yeah, it's all, it's all towards this idea of building the, ma the, big, the, gr the grid, I guess, in some ways, the matrix, I guess you could call it. Yep. Yep. But I think people, you know, as you were saying, like that enables much more of a push method, right? For products, for services, when someone is ingesting all the data about you and then like, whoa, the Uber's waiting there. I didn't do anything. That's also a little scary. And I think people don't want to be imprisoned by that. And I, I agree with you that sort of people are going to hopefully uh, want to seize back control of that right and so you know just like we were talking about first party data for brands people will realize that the exhaust they leave behind uh, in the world whether it's from running riding an uber shopping a direct consumer site at some point they're going to need to be able to control and and the more of our lives is virtual right the more that balance sort of tilts to like what is reality right like it used to be all physical zero virtual you know, 50 years ago, I don't know where it is right now, but it's like, it's getting close to, to sort of matching. The more people's lives are digital and generating data, and the more that data determines what their experience of the world is, the more they're going to have to say, you know what, 
I need to control where that goes for what purposes, because it is literally being fed back to me as, as the world I inhabit. And so, you know, in the same way, you want to decide what house you live in, what city, what country you're going to need to be able to decide what, you know, house built by your own data you get to live in that can't, we can't give that away to billionaires. I think, but the, the scary thing is, I think we will because I think the next iPhone, the next like big thing that moves us in the direction, the same way that the the, the mobile phones have, is going to be the AI that we outsource all that to. It's going to be, you know, once we have all that responsibility, we're going to need. This is I keep talking about AI butlers on this podcast, but I feel like the, the your sort of like living wallet butler thing that allows you to speak plain English about I want this, I don't want that, I want this kind of thing, and have it then represent you in the matrix essentially is is that's my that's my pred- big prediction is is that, that 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 sort of AI butler thing will be the next big iPhone. I think even like 20 years ago, people would not have accounted for like open source, right? The open source software movement, community ethos has brought down, you know, a lot of big software companies, but it's something like kind of unprecedented that, and, and political. And, and so I'm hoping that in the open source community and the web three community, there will be alternatives to the sort of corporatized digital DNA, you know, at the simplest level, like the pages of shit you have to pretend that you read and agree to every time, you know, Apple does uh, a new software release or my Android phone, Samsung will just pause my ability to use my phone until I accept this. Like what's in there? I don't know. But I think transparent, like we can, I'm hoping we will bust out of of that cage and we won't need to give away all this unknown shit that we're currently giving away in order to, to live. I think when people really tangibly understand that their data is an asset and, and that owning that um, is really important, I think that's sort of a turning point. You're seeing, you're seeing that actually sort of come out of the crypto community, ironically, where there's a real understanding of, of like this stuff actually has value. People don't really get it right now, but here's why it's important later. Um, I think, you know, especially if the metaverse really kind of materializes into something that, that's, that's really tangible and, and people literally work in it or whatever, I think we'll see that, that kind of shift, you know, where people will just get sick of sort of rent seeking mega platforms like Apple and Facebook and whatever, literally monetizing them. And I mean, already there's apps you can download to figure out how much you're worth, you know, to, in terms of data. And it's crazy. I was, I was worth like 80 grand or something on, on Facebook. Um, I think you're worth more so, than that. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. I, I appreciate it. Um, but so I think there will be sort of like a Mayflower moment where people will want to get away from the old world of, of landlords and whatever and stake their claim. In, in kind of a new a new world. And I think Web3, you know, whether it's Web3 or not, I think there will be somewhat of a renaissance where people come to the senses and say, look, this data is actually the currency of, of the new world, and it's important that I own my piece of it. Yeah. And, and whether welcome or not, to bring it back to marketing and for brands, that's the same realization that I think a lot of D2C brands have had. You know, people who relied on the weird ad tech ecosystem and data co-ops and data sharing and buying audience and, 
you know, as these titans that you were talking about, Chris, you know, Apple and Facebook, like they're like these two, you know, Godzilla monsters fighting it out. And we're all left like watching this spectacle that's having real impacts on our lives. I think during that period, a lot of brands got the message that, you know what, my first party data, the data I own is an asset, just like my personal, you know, individual data is. But for a brand, I need to start taking advantage of it because if I rely on these big platforms and they decide to, you know, start punching each other in the face one morning, it's going to impact my life. So I, I need to take control of it. And it's and it's there now. That's what's really cool with companies like Black Crow is that they're you know the the technology is there now. It's working. It's super exciting. So let's uh, let's stay in touch. You're gonna be our you're gonna be our machine learning guy here on Future Proof. I think there's a lot for people to to take in when they listen to this. Like just first of all, three dudes rambling about uh, machine learning and AI. Like, who doesn't love that? Uh, I, I think this was a pretty sweet podcast. What do you think, Chris? Oh, it was awesome, and I think a lot of really good takeaways too. You know, especially about you know, what what this actually looks like today, what we think it might look like tomorrow. But I, I love, you know, just to sort of go back to sort of you described the aha moment of people see those buckets of like, even today, you can see 2% average conversion rate doesn't mean 2%. Here's what it actually means. That's a really cool way to look at it. And that's a really interesting, I guess, innovation that we only really have uh, with AI and with ML. And so anyway, I, I thought it was a great podcast. I think there's a lot of value in it. You guys are democratizing AI. We're democratizing commerce at Future Proof, the Lazy Marketer, and D2C. So it's a natural fit. Totally. Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed this. I love thinking about and talking about this stuff. So anytime, happy to come back for more chats. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.